In Mark chapter 10, Jesus has his disciples, in verse 13, rebuke the people who bring children to Jesus. They rebuke the people because they believe Jesus doesn't have time for the kids. He's too important a man to waste his time listening to little kids laugh and giggle and squirm and and, uh, bother him when he's got more important things to do. And Jesus rebukes them for rebuking the people who brought the children to Jesus. Listen to how it's told in Mark's Gospel. Mark 10, 13. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. And his disciples rebuked them, that is, the people who were bringing these children. These people wanted Jesus to touch their children. You can understand that. If Jesus were here today, wouldn't you want Jesus to touch your children? I would. I'd want him to touch me. Amen? So these people are wanting something good, wanting something that Jesus offers, and that is a changed life. They're hoping if Jesus touches their children, their children will be blessed from that point on. Whether that's true or not, that's what they were after. But the disciples rebuked the parents and the people who brought the children because they thought Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom. He was going to set up an earthly kingdom where they would help him rule and reign over his enemies, and he didn't have time for children. But to their surprise, he rebukes them. When Jesus saw this, verse 14, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now, he wasn't saying that all children go to heaven. That's not his point. His point was not that children are safe from judgment. David said he came forth from his mother's womb sinning. Children are not born guiltless. They are born without prior evil experience, but they they have a soul that has been corrupted by Adam's nature. And that's why they sin not very long after they're born. You don't have to teach them to lie. You don't have to teach them to take things that aren't theirs. They do. So Jesus is not saying children are innocent, children are guiltless. What he's saying is there's a certain trust and abandonment that characterizes children that ought to characterize anyone who wants to come into the kingdom of heaven. And that is a blind trust that doesn't ask questions, just simply rests their complete life in Jesus Christ and not in themselves. You came in this morning and you sat down. You didn't even study whether the chair could hold you up. You just knew that it would, and so you placed your weight in the chair. That's a similar metaphor with surrendering to the chair. You surrendered to the chair this morning. You may not have intended to. You may not like it thought of that way, but that's what you did. When you decided to rest your weight in that chair you're sitting in, you trusted in the chair. It was almost a blind trust because you didn't know that someone hadn't mixed, messed with the, the, uh, the structure of the chair before you sat down. 
you, based on prior experience, you trusted the chair that you've sat in for several years. But if you said, I trust this chair and you wouldn't sit down in it, you don't trust it at all. And there are people who say, I trust Jesus, but they won't sit down. They won't rest their soul in his care. They won't surrender to his lordship. So they're not trusting Jesus. They're trusting in themselves. They're trusting in religion. They're trusting in their good works, their self-righteousness, or some other thing. But when you trust in Jesus, you lay all of who you are into his hands. And that's what Jesus is talking about when the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Children, it is often said, are gullible. Now, there's certain kinds of gullibility that are not, that are not virtuous, right? We don't like to be called gullible. We don't like to be thought of as easily led. We want to be critical and thoughtful and careful. But there is a certain kind of gullibility in a child that is a virtue. And that is the unquestioned confidence that that child has in their parents' abilities, their parents' reputation, their parents' character. And, you know, little boys say it this way, my dad can beat your dad. That's a gullibility that's admirable, isn't it? Whether it's true or not, it's what the kid believes, and he believes it with all his heart, because that's my dad. And that's this kind of abandon that Jesus is saying, if you don't have, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. You have to feel as though your heavenly Father, or Jesus Christ, or the Holy Spirit, whoever we're talking about, whether the first, second, third person of the Godhead, is completely trustworthy and can take care of every need you have. That's why John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him, that means trusts with all of your heart, all of your might, all of your strength. You're surrendering all that you are to Him. And you're trusting that He can take care of all that you are and all that you have. That's trust. That's what children give away so easily. And it's why there's so many crimes against the, the, the misplaced trust that children put in people who can't be trusted. People who take advantage of children because of that kind of gullibility, that, that kind of, of abandoned. And, and what a tragedy it is. And those crimes ought to be more severe for when they're committed against children who are easily led and easily duped. But Jesus isn't talking about being duped. He's talking about This abandoned trust that characterizes children who trust in their parents. And therefore, you ought to have this same kind of abandon when you trust God for your soul. Now, he said in verse 15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. So the first thing you must do to enter the kingdom is you must have childlike trust. Psalm 131 says, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. Why does he say that? Because children who are very young don't have a track record to be proud of. They haven't accomplished anything. They haven't done anything of any great significance. They are at least in some sense aware of the fact that they are brand new to the scene and they don't have much to offer by way of knowledge or, or activity. They're sort of resourceless and they know it. 
My heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. He's saying, like a child who rests on his mother's bosom, what greater comfort can you think of than that picture? A child who's satisfied, a child who's in the care of his or her mother, who loves the child and is committed to taking care of the child, and there's this complete, utter rest and abandonment that that child is experiencing emotionally in his or her mother. That can be experienced with your father, too. And so it's childlike trust that you must have in order to get into the kingdom of heaven. In one of Bible dictionaries, it says, trust is a reliance on and confidence in a person. Scripture affirms the total trustworthiness of God, especially in relation to His promises to His people. Christian faith is essentially trust in the person and the character of God. That's what trust is. It's saying to God, I trust you enough to depend on my eternal destiny and place it in your hands. When we teach evangelism, we we try to help people present the gospel. And one of the helpful things that is in most evangelical and evangelistic curriculums is the question, if you were to stand before God today and He asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Now, as a witness, as an evangelist, you're listening for the answer because the answer will tell you what the person is trusting in. And some answers that you get when you ask that question are answers like this. I'm not really that bad of a person. Now, what does that tell you that person is trusting in when that answer comes out? They're trusting in themselves, or at least they're trusting that they're not so bad that God wouldn't find favor with them. Or, I'm a pretty good person. Again, they're trusting in themselves. I'm very religious. I go to church all the time. I tithe. I help the poor. I give to charities. They're trusting in their own efforts. The only answer that is legitimate and worthy of hearing is, I don't trust in myself. I I don't deserve heaven. If it were for my efforts, you shouldn't let me into heaven. But I have surrendered my life to Jesus Christ who promised He would save me if I would place my faith and trust in Him. And He has done everything required for my entrance into heaven. He has earned the righteousness that I need to get in. And He's taken away the sins that disqualify me. So on two counts, I deserve heaven, not because I've done anything, but because He's done everything. He's taken away my sin, and He's given me His righteousness. And so I plead His righteousness and not my own. That's the only acceptable answer. That's a childlike trust. We have a hymn in our faith called, O Worship the King. Listen to the first verse. O frail children of dust, 
and feeble is frail. In Thee do we trust, nor find Thee to fail. Thy mercies how tender, how firm to the end, our Maker, Defender, Redeemer, and Friend. Listen to those first two lines. Frail children of dust. What is it admitting? We're made but dust. We're just but dust. We, we are frail. And we're not only frail, we're as feeble as we are frail. In you we trust, and we don't find you to ever fail. That's the childlike trust that Jesus is talking about when he rebukes his own disciples for rebuking the people who bring children to Jesus. Listen to this hymn. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus just to trust his cleansing blood. Just in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood. Yes, tis sweet to trust in Jesus just from sin and self to cease. Just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. I'm so glad I learned to trust in precious Jesus, Savior, friend. And I know that he is with me and will be with me to the end. The chorus, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Amen? He says in the last line of the chorus, I trust him, but I need to trust him more. That could be said of all of us. We don't trust him enough. But you can trust him enough to be saved. It's when you say, I can't. I can't save myself. I have nothing of righteousness to bring to you, to offer you, to merit my salvation. I'm trusting completely in your righteousness, in your mercy, in your grace. Reminds me of the man that Jesus was going to heal, and he said, do you believe? And he said, I believe, but help my unbelief. There's a measure of unbelief in all of us, isn't there? Every time we sin... We fail at the point of faith because we, at that moment, think at least at that point in time that our way is better than God's. And therefore, it demonstrates a lack of faith in us. So it's childlike faith that he's talking about, but it's more than that. It's childlike dependence. Childlike dependence. Psalm seventy-three twenty-five says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. This, re- this last week, a friend of mine from college texted me and he said, my dad's in the hospital and it looks like he's going to be needing 24-hour around-the-clock care. This friend of mine has his PhD in history and teaches at a university in Texas. He's been teaching there for almost 30 years. And he said, we need to get together and talk about life. And, he, and I text back, why? And he said, because I am becoming more and more disillusioned with higher education. And uh, I said, well, I'm becoming more disillusioned with this, that, and the other thing, you know. And he said, well, have you ever read Ecclesiastes? I said, certainly. He said, it's my favorite book. And that book's theme is this, that life is meaningless if you don't have God. 
In fact, all your accomplishments will be forgotten. And the only people who would remember are people who are going to die anyway. So at some point, everybody forgets you. And I wrote back, it highlights all the more the importance of laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven and not on earth. Because think about it. What are you going to leave behind? Whatever you leave behind will die. And whoever you leave behind will forget. There's only one place where you can make deposits that are eternal. So, whatever you do, whatever your vocation, whatever your avocation, make deposits in heaven because that's where it matters. That's why the psalmist says, Whom am I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Childlike dependence. When you get to the place where you say, really, all I have is God. Think about it. We have blessings in children and blessings in spouses and blessings in friends and blessings in possessions and all kinds of blessings that one song says if we counted them, we'd never be able to name them all. But all of that is like to, it's going to perish with us. All of that is going to perish with us. And one day this whole earth will be consumed with the fire of God and it will perish. And He'll have to make a new heaven and a new earth. Where are your deposits? What are you trusting in? All your efforts, where are you placing them? In whose care are you placing them? What are they? Are they works that are stored up on earth or are they works that are stored up in heaven? Paul said in Philippians 3, 7-9, after he had told us how religious he was, how fastidious he was in his religious devotion... He was a Pharisee. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the law, he was blameless in in regard to external conformity. He was very moral, probably as moral, if not more moral than any of us here. And yet he says, after he rehearses all that he's accomplished in himself, whatever things were gained to me, those I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, They don't amount to anything. I'm not depending on them as something I can carry over to God and say, this is something you need to repay me heaven with. You know, you need to repay me with the gift of heaven because of what I've done. He says, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish So here's what his point is. All that I've accomplished religiously, morally, and otherwise is just trash. It's trash. It's interesting that he uses that phrase because Isaiah says in a similar uh, regard that all of our good works are like filthy rags. 
They don't amount to anything. And that's what Paul's saying in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And this next verse is the key. And may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says, I don't want to be depending on anything other than the righteousness of Christ. And the last thing I want to depend on is the righteousness of my own. He wants a righteousness that is alien to him. In fact, that's what theologians call it, alien righteousness, meaning we get into heaven by the righteousness of someone else, not our own righteousness. He says, I don't want to be found having a righteousness of my own, but I want to be found having a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. What happens at that moment? The moment you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God gives you the righteousness of Christ. He he credits it to your account. It's as though you took the SAT test for heaven and you failed it miserably and Jesus took it and said, you can have my grade. What kind of score do you think he would make on the SAT? Perfect score. And he offers it to you as a free gift. And you say, well, how is that fair? It's fair because he's merciful and gracious and wants to give you grace and mercy rather than justice. So it's childlike dependence. Jairus and his praise team picked out I need the every hour. I picked it out too, and I didn't know they were going to choose that. So listen to the words of I need the every hour. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee every hour in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide, or life is vain. I need thee every hour, teach me thy will, and thy rich promises in me fulfill. I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. He should have said, I need thee every second, but it's not very poetic. That's not where the story ends. He goes on to tell another story, Mark does, beginning with verse 17. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? There's the question right out of the box. From the get-go, from the onset, this man asks what he must do to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus tested him. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. What Jesus was saying is this. You don't think I'm God, so why are you calling me good? I I am God, but you don't recognize me as God, so why are you calling me good? And then he says something startling. He says, there is none that are good except God. Now, I want to ask you, given that claim, 
There are none that are good. How are you going to get into heaven with good works if you're not good? It's eliminated from the start. It's just eliminated right off the bat. He says, there's none good. Now that is an echo of what Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God. There's none who does good. So good works couldn't be a, a way of salvation because no one can, can ever manufacture them. And for several reasons. Good works are not done in the, for the glory of God are not called good works. And most of us who are trying to earn our salvation by good works are concerned about ourselves, not God. And therefore, it, it uh, compromises the whole idea of a good work. So he asked Jesus what he must do. Jesus said to him, You know the commandments. So he presents him the law. What is the law supposed to do? Drive us to Jesus Christ. How does it do that? It shows us that we can't keep it. It shows us that we're sinful. And so he presents him the law. When you present the law to someone, the response should be, if they're thinking clearly, that's too hard. But a lot of people are pretty high on themselves, so they say, like he said, I've kept that from my youth up. He hadn't kept it since that morning. He was probably a very moral person, probably very particular about his behavior, but he didn't realize that he was a sinner and hadn't kept the law even that day, let alone from his youth up. You say, how do you know he hadn't kept it? Well, Jesus is going to show him how he's violated the first commandment and has done so for most of his life. Notice what Jesus says. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Now, what is this one thing he lacks? Everything. You say, he only lacks one thing. Yeah, but the problem is this one thing is everything. He says, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess. And give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words his face fell, and he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. Now let me share with you what the test is. Jesus says, here's a test. You claim to have kept all these commandments from your youth up. I'm about to show you, you've not even kept the first one. What is the first one? Love the Lord thy God, and you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus wanted to show him what his God was, and his God was money. And so he said, get rid of your God, and then you can have me as your God. That's always the case. Do you understand that? When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, Christ calls you to abandon all your gods and take, a, take him on as your God. You say, what gods? Well, they're different with different people. For this man, it was his money. For you, it may be your looks. It may be your kids. It may be your car, your house, your, your uh, 401k, your RV, your athletic ability. 
your popularity, your power. There's all kinds of things that we make our God because we depend on them more than we do God himself. And that's called what? Idolatry. This man was an idolater and he didn't even realize he was an idolater. And Jesus tried to help him see it and he wouldn't have it. He says, no, I like my God. Can't I have two? Can't I have this God and you too? And God says, no, it's him or me. It's this God or me. Make your choice. And the scriptures say he went away sorrowful because he had great wealth. So you must not only come with childlike faith, you must not only come with childlike dependence, but you must admit you're a a pauper. You're spiritually bankrupt. What is a pauper? A very poor person. A recipient of government relief or public charity. In other words, a person who has no resources. Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 3, in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I remember early on in my Christian walk, when I read that, I used to think the poor in spirit are those people who walk around depressed, you know, sad, melancholy, uh, kind of self-deprecating, you know, that's poor in spirit. Oh, I'm just nothing, and I'm not going to amount to nothing, and, you know, I'm just, I don't, you know, no, spirit... Poor in spirit means this. It means you're spiritually bankrupt. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever declared bankruptcy. It's more popular today than it's ever been. But when you declare bankruptcy, at best, you have no money. But in reality, most people who declare bankruptcy not only have no money, that would be zero, you're behind in the count. You're in debt for a lot of money too. It's not just that you're at zero, it's that you are in a great deficit. So spiritual bankruptcy is the admission that I have nothing to offer God spiritually. I have nothing to merit my salvation. I really have nothing at all. I'm a pauper. I want to be a prince. But you can't be until you admit you're a pauper. Most people don't think they're paupers. They think they're princes. We have an invitation that we sing sometimes called Just As I Am. Listen to the words. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. What is he saying? Just as I am, Without one plea. What's that idea? I have nothing to plead my case. I have nothing to say I deserve heaven. I have nothing to offer you. There's nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come. That's the way you have to come. Spiritually bankrupt. This man thought he had kept the commandments from his youth up. He hadn't kept them since he got up that morning. This man was self-righteous. Most people 
who Jesus confronted admitted they were at least sinners of some degree. Remember the woman taken in adultery? She had, she reached out for Jesus and he said, where are those who condemn you? I neither condemn you, go and sin no more. She recognized she was a sinner. What about the woman who broke the alabaster box upon Jesus' feet with all that sweet perfume? She recognized she was a sinner. This man came to Jesus and said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. He says, I've kept them from my youth. All of them. You talk to people about being sinners, and some people have actually said, I haven't sinned, and I can't remember when the last time I sinned. I can't remember the last time I didn't. So you must admit you're spiritually bankrupt. Paul admits this in Philippians 3, 7, and 8, and 9, which we looked at earlier, so I won't repeat it, but I want to repeat the last verse. Look at verse 9. I want to be found in Him. In Him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So this man comes to Jesus. He tells him to keep the commandments. This man says, I've done it since my childhood. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, let me tell you about what you're doing with your money. It's your God. Give it up. And the man said, no. So you must admit you're spiritually bankrupt. Rock of Ages says this, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. These for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. In my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Those are fantastic words. Not the labors of my hands, can fulfill thy law's demands. And these hands for sin could not atone. If I'm going to be saved, it has to be all you, God. It has to be all you. Thou must save and thou alone. And the old rugged cross. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. What does that mean? How many of you, don't raise your hand, have a trophy case? Some people, it's their den. And some people, it hangs on the wall with horns. Everybody has a trophy case, even if it's not visible, right? You are aware, and I am aware, of all the accomplishments we've achieved over the years. And for some, we're proud, and for others, we're not. But we keep pulling out our trophies and showing them to God. We polish them up and we say, Look, God, look what I've accomplished. Look, look, God, you owe me. Look, God, I've done this good deed and I've done that good deed. And God's waiting for us to finally at last lay our trophies down. Lay them down. How are you going to impress God? You have a hard enough time impressing your friends. 
right? And their standards, at least at your level, are a little bit lower or a little bit higher, but God's standards are perfect. How are you going to impress him? Whatever accomplishments you've achieved, he gave you the ability and the brain power to do it. So it all comes back to him. Even if you could, if you, if you could claim an IQ of 250 and you were the Nobel Laureate Prize winner and you were the uh, Pulitzer Prize winner and the Heisman Trophy winner all in one person, what are you going to do? It all comes back to him. So the song says this, Till my trophies at last I lay down. I'm going to cling to the old rugged cross till at last my trophies I lay down. Quit polishing them. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. That's what you have to do. You have to have childlike faith. You have to have childlike dependence. And you must come as a pauper admitting that you're spiritually bankrupt. Let's read the text again. They were bringing children to him so that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them. But when he saw this, He was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands upon them. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all, your, all you possess and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But at these words his face fell, and he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. Now, don't walk away thinking that if you give your money away, you can go to heaven. That's not his point that were the case, we'd all be passing our money to one another like a hot potato, hoping that we didn't have it when God came back or when we died, right? It's yours. You take it. No, you take it. I I don't want it. it. Get it away from me. See, there's nothing wrong with money. Paul said the love of money is the root of all evil. Money can be used for good or ill, for God's glory or for man's glory. So it's not about money. It's about what are you making your God? So, do you have childlike faith? Do you have childlike dependence? And do you recognize that you have nothing to offer God? 
Now, once you're saved, you have everything to offer God, and He asks you to. He says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a holy and living sacrifice, which is acceptable unto God. It is your reasonable service of worship. Once you're saved, the the most reasonable thing to do is give your heart and all of your energy to Jesus' work because He deserves it. Now, He doesn't ask us to do all that good work in order to pay for our salvation. He asks us to do that good work because of how good He is as a thank you for what He's already done for us. So today you have either confidence in yourself, trust in yourself, or trust in your spiritual bank account. And you must abandon all those. There are two roads that Jesus talked about. One leads to destruction. The other leads to eternal life. The one that leads to destruction is wide, he said, and broad, and many enter on that path. So get the picture in your head. It's a wide road. It's a broad road. And how many are on that road? Many. The narrow way to heaven is very narrow and the gate is small. And how many enter upon that path, Jesus said? Few. Now, I don't know what that ratio turns out to be, but many is more than few. Would you agree? So it may be 60-40, it may be 55-45, it may be 70-30, it may be 80-20, it may be 90-10, but few is less than many, and many is more than a few, right? So it's lopsided in some, in, in some degree. There are going to be less people in heaven than there are in hell. Now, what, what do we know about the road that leads to destruction? It's wide, and many enter upon that path. And here's the other point. The sign is marked heaven on that wide road. It's the road of religion. You say, Pastor, how can you say that? It's the road of religion. You're religious. Yes, I am religious. And we are involved in religion this morning. But there's religion and then there's a relationship. And you can be a Baptist and a Methodist or a Presbyterian or any of the other breeds of Christians or the brands of Christians. And you could be lost because you're still trusting in your own works and your own merit. You may be even trusting in your own denomination. You may be even trusting in your own church, your local church. What I'm saying to you is this. If you're not trusting in Jesus, you're trusting in your religion. We are religious, but we're not trusting in our religion. Our religion teaches us to trust in Jesus, who is a person. It's a relationship with God himself. So you can be a Baptist and go to hell because you're not trusting in Jesus. You're trusting in being a Baptist or being a Methodist or a Calvary Chapelite or whatever it is you fancy yourself to be. And some of you who don't fancy yourself to be anything are trusting in that. I'm nothing. You're getting close. Keep talking. You're nothing and what? I'm nothing. I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm a child who depends upon God completely and utterly. So being religious won't get you to heaven. Only a person can get you there, and that's Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for making it clear to us, which is so counterintuitive to the world's thinking, to even our thinking before we were awakened by your Holy Spirit. Our natural reaction is one of earning our salvation, working for it. And what's so counterintuitive is that it's free. It's been paid for by Jesus Christ. And you offer it to us as a free gift, already paid. And that just sets across our way of thinking. I pray, Lord, that you will change the thinking of those here this morning who are trusting in themselves to whatever degree and that they would abandon all trust in themselves and transfer all of that trust and more to Jesus Christ and Him alone. Don't let them trust in their religion. Don't let them trust in their religious ceremony or ritual or devotion. Don't let them trust in their obedience or their morality. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And we pray this in His name. Amen.